Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, it is time once again for Cody Townsend and me to review the news, and once again, this is a pretty wide-ranging conversation. So there is definitely some politics talk, there is definitely some NFL talk, there is some 50 Project talk, and we've got a couple of terrific Mountain Town advice questions. So do keep those questions coming, people. Best place to submit them is on the Blister website. Just put Mountain Town Advice in the title and we will get those. And yeah, this is another good one. This episode of Reviewing the News is presented by our Blister recommended shop, Backcountry Essentials in Bellingham, Washington. Backcountry Essentials has been around since 2006. They carry snow sports gear from top brands, and they are an outstanding ski boot fitting destination in the Pacific Northwest. They also are a full service ski shop with highly skilled technicians, and they have a killer selection of rental gear for trips up to Mount Baker or Whistler. So go check out Backcountry Essentials in downtown Bellingham, and you can also visit them online at Backcountry Essentials. Net. And now, let's review some news. Here we go. Well, Cody, we're back. It's time to review the news. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. It's actually snowing outside right now. Um, that's, huh. that's a big win. Uh, it's like the, it started yesterday. I've got about like three, four inches at my house and it continues to snow and the kind of long-term track actually looks pretty good for Tahoe. So, uh, yeah, kind of excitement in the air. I went for a run a little too, uh, late yesterday (laughs) and started just getting absolutely (laughs) dumped on and I was severely underdressed. I was just, I've been really busy and slammed and just like ran out the door and was like, oh yeah, that's good. I'll get in before the storm and the storm hit pretty much while I it was like high up on the mountain behind my house. And uh, I was like, okay, like you got to keep moving to keep warm and uh, don't trip and break an ankle because this could get life threatening real quick. So one of those dumb mistakes of not really checking the weather appropriately nor uh, being prepared appropriately. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Well, I guess maybe better to be relearning that kind of annual lesson when you're on a run as opposed to on top of some huge mountain, maybe. I don't know. Totally. Yeah. Much, much less consequential being a couple miles from your house and from, from help and in cell phone reservice than doing it way deep in the backcountry and like, oh, I forgot my gloves and that kind of stuff. Right. My, my go to move though is I almost always dress for skiing. I dress for the day before. Mm. I dress for the last time I was on the mountain. Yeah. That's my move, right? So if it was a super cold day the last time and it was like, dang, I was real cold, then I just go out, you know, the next time 
overdressed. So I'm I'm working on it. I'm I'm learning. Yeah, totally. I always find it's just the first like ski tours of the season, the first going even to the resort, just so discombobulated of what exactly <laughs> I need, which is wild yeah. to me because you're like, I've been doing this for 30 plus years. How you think yeah. you'd figure this out and that it comes in the fall, like you know what to pack. Like how many times I've walked to my car and turned it on and been like, oh, goggles. I need goggles. <laughs> like those kind of basic things. It's just like, it astounds me how, uh, oh, maybe we're just such patterns of our own habit that like if you break those little bit of habits or you're just, we're so discombobulated. Maybe this year I will learn from your run in the snowstorm Maybe that will be enough. Maybe I can actually learn from someone else's experience rather than have to, you know, make my own mistakes. That I'm going to hope that that's uh, true for this season. Yeah, what do they say? That fools learn from their own mistakes and wise the wise learn from the mistakes of others? Yeah. Yeah, I still yeah. have not reached the wise <laughs> right. level yet. I generally have to do it myself and like fail at it. And then I'm like, oh, don't do that. <laughs> and hey... We had a new 50 episode drop this morning. We're recording this on Wednesday, November 2nd. I actually watched it the morning of a drop, which is unusual for me. So I'm feeling very on point. Couple questions I had for you for, for this. Uh, can we call it the Sphinx episode? Yeah. Round two. Okay. Round two Sphinx. Round, Sphinx round two. First of all, I want to ask about the up and then the down. It is really hard. I think almost always just something about the nature of camera angles. I, I kept trying to be like on your climb up, like, okay, how steep is this really? Because there are varied camera angles. Sometimes we're going to drones. And honestly, sometimes things look fairly flat. And then sometimes it's like, that's literally a vertical wall. And so... Can you help, given that I wasn't there? Like, was it like, okay, it's actually fairly mellow, but then there's a couple of crux moments on the climb where you truly are getting what feels like close to vertical? Explain, please. Yeah, so... I'll start by saying there's a little anecdote that I got cut out of uh, the episode um, because I just didn't feel like it was very appropriate. But I took out an incl inclinometer, pretty much just took out my phone while we were climbing up. And I measure the slope and it was about 45 degrees. And I say something kind of snarky like, so all you people that are claiming 55 degrees... <laughs> Yeah, it is bullshit. And uh, because it truly is, the more I've gotten to like climb stuff and the more I actually measure it, like our interpretation of what, when people say 55, that is rare. Like the steepest thing I've personally measured and skied was pretty much the big slope on pontoon. And that was 53 degrees. And that felt unreal how steep and exposed it was. It was that kind of feeling of like, uh, you just, you can barely like your hands are three inches in front of your face with your ice axes in, and you're just like feeling the air literally between below your heels. And that was 53 degrees. So, so the thing is though, even at 45 degrees and it kind of ramps up towards the end. So I didn't measure the, the, the final hundred feet and that probably gets to like an actual 50 degrees. But the thing is when there's a thousand plus feet, almost 2000 feet of 45 degrees under you, you feel, it feels a lot steeper than 
you would normally imagine a 45 degree slope to be. It's that same feeling too when all of a sudden you get on skis and you're like, oh yeah, this is great. This is I I like 45 degrees in the way I call it fun steep. Like it's steep, but it's fun. You don't feel like, oh my God, if I fall, I'm tumbling to the bottom. I have to keep my uh, my every single turn hyper in control. Um, it's fun steep to me, but climbing it brings a whole different element to it because you are on that face for a very long time. You're thinking about the overhead hazard that could sweep you off. You're thinking about every little movement that you're making up. So, um, I think the face itself was more around that 50 degrees back down to 45 because where we climbed was a little less steep um, than that. And then you might have like two turns at the very top that are like 55. But to me, like you don't count two turns as the proper slope angle. It's like kind of take an average of it. So so it's the kind of thing where, yeah, no, it's steep. Um but it was kind of fun steep. And the first time I did it when we were up there and it was just rock hard bulletproof and like your heels literally are sticking out of the snow, like 45 degrees feels really, really steep. It's why we can't ever have a proper rating system in, in skiing and almost like snow climbing in many ways, because of the fact that like doing it in powder snow is like, pretty easy. Yes, it could be more physically challenging just because you're doing a little bit more trail work. But like when all of a sudden it's icy and hard pack, like it feels terrifying how steep it is because you, you know, if you do slip or you throw a cramp on or something, you're sliding at 70, 80 miles an hour down to the bottom. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's legit steep. It's not like in my mind, ridiculous. Um, I think there's probably only a handful of lines in the world that are actually legit 60 degrees sustained so so anyone that ever claims 60 degrees that's utter bs and 55 is like well some lines but i haven't encountered it that often okay so and the episode people can you know judge for themselves on this but there are some moments in the episode a couple moments where you're like okay it's getting the nerves level are coming up a bit again i'm still talking about the climb mm -hmm. but then you're like yeah, it was it was actually pretty chill. Yeah, it was. It did so feel. So is pretty the chill. first part true? But like, couple of moments where you're like, okay, like actually scared, or just like, let's be real focused right now. Um, I would say there was a bit of focus when that slough came down because there was this upper kind of left side of us that had some big kind of gargoyles, um, which are big snow bulges, like barely hanging onto a cliff. There was a couple small cornices and whatnot, and that was taking a lot of sun. And it was the first day of sun after a big storm. Those kind of things definitely make me nervous because um, you're like, that can pull off at any time. We got to move up. When it came to the pitch and the steepness, like it really wasn't that scary, but that was because I've had now at this point a lot of experience in that sort of realm. Um, I tend to be fearful, have that respect, as Marcus Eder was putting it in the in your last episode. Um, when it's really new to me, I don't have experience with it. I don't have any like prior experience to pull from. With the the first attempt being in 2019, the first year of the 50, it was that was really new to me, was climbing up a steep hardback face like that. So since then, I think a lot of the comfort and why I felt like it was personally easy was just my own personal comfort. But in the grander scheme of things, like 
we edit it as tense because it's still tense. It's still steep. It's still gnarly. Um, I'm not going to like dumb down the edit to my exact feeling that I had there. Um, you, you, 99% of people would be climbing up that going like, Oh my God, this is scary as shit. And so, yeah, we've kind of put it, added it as such. Um, but definitely felt more comfortable on it this time. And I will say there's those moments you're climbing up the ridge line, you look down to your right, just down the face. And it's like, Woo, wow this thing is big and steep and that's it's a fun feeling I've, I've come to really enjoy that feeling as opposed to be um, just terrified of it hmm. the downhill god it looked beautiful and so then the question was like i mean well first of all the just the sort of cinematography of it was just so pretty i guess what i wondered and it's absolutely like God, you want to be there so bad on that line, on those conditions. That's what it looked like. But then I'm kind of wondering about sort of the looks, you know, versus reality. How much were you like, okay, yep, this right now, this turn, everything looks good, feels good. But are you still kind of mentally in a just get ready to hit a weird patch like how defensive were you skiing versus like, no, I really actually was like, I can trust this. You know what I mean? Totally. No, I, I was on the, I was on the defensive side for two reasons. Um, the first reason being gear. Um, I did not have a pair of skis mounted with shift bindings or even Alpine bindings, um, in my van when we were in Revelstoke. So I had to ski it on tech bindings. So in that regard, I pulled back the the speedometer for myself just because you're like, dude, if I do hit that weird patch, if I hit that run all the speed and I lose it and I'm tomahawking, you know, all of a sudden I'm not ditching my skis and tommy into the bottom. Like it's all of a sudden I'm twisting my leg apart and stuff. So um, that was like a governor for myself was just being unfortunately on tech bindings. I much would have rather preferred to be on something like a shift. The secondary aspect is too, like when we're free ride filming, you're always getting warm-up runs. You're always doing snow check runs, and that's your first run of the day. So you don't know exactly how it's going to be. Um, and there was like there's some a couple little hard patches. There was a couple little like funky turns. So you kind of want to dial it back on that first run. Um, I mean, I looked at the footage, I'm like, man, I could have skied that way faster. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> but you know, in that moment, those of you making those decisions, because you're like, well, no, I want to get down this in one piece. I want to get down this in general. Um, Tommying three quarters of the face and being like, I think I got to hike back up there and do it again to consider it checked off the list would not have been a happy moment for myself. So uh, yeah, the governor is on a little bit more. You have heavier packs and then when you're free ride filming, like the, those things play into a big equation. Um, you know, when I was free ride filming, I would bring the biggest, stiffest, longest skis I could have 140 flex race boots and, you know, steel Solomon 916s. And you're, you're set up to be like, like a downhill racer. If I hit an ice chunder going 65, I'm going to be able to blast through it. And I knew like my equipment wasn't there, nor did I have kind of the, the prior evaluation of snowpack and, and skiing that kind of snow there. So yeah, you, you dial it back a little bit. <laughs> so wait, is there an official ruling? Let's say you tomahawk 
just a portion of the line, <laughs> yeah, totally. do walk back up, find your gear, and then ski it out. Does that count? Well, do you yeah. have a because you you like to get like way more particular about like sort of what counts or what doesn't. We talked about this a number of times. I don't think we've talked about this particular question. Yeah, no, I man, that would be, I think it would have to be individual circumstance because there was like, even the first time we went up the Sphinx, like we didn't go to the very top top and we skied from a lower portion and people were like, no, you skied it, you skied the face. And it was just like a personal feeling of like, no, doesn't feel properly skied. So if I Tommied half the face, I would probably like, I gotta go back up there and get redemption if the goal is to check this off a list i think yeah if i like just tumbled over the bergschrund whatever like if you're that far below and you'd probably be laughing about it because when you're going over the bergschrund that is like the finish line for a line that we'd all consider it it's where the the shot always ends moments after you jump the bergschrund in a ski movie so if i happened to tommy over it i'd probably consider it like ah whatever that was stupid but uh for me whatever. It's a dumb mistake. So yeah, I don't think we've ever properly defined that yet. <laughs> I I think for me personally, tomahawking counts as skiing. <laughs> okay. It is a part, you it have is skis a on. part of skiing. <laughs> yeah, I've got or had. Yeah. yeah, it started with skis. And then I'm still being very active uh, as I'm yeah in the spin cycle. So yeah, I think for me, tomahawking counts as skiing. Cool. For you, it sounds like, well, Maybe not quite. Depends on where it started. Uh, and it, it goes down to okay. that personal interpretation. Because that's my big thing is it's honesty and personal interpretation. You know, yeah. it's like where you're at in the world, what you're doing, how the line was, how you felt about it internally is really kind of what it comes down to for counting. So, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, but I, I do like that. Like you, you call it, it it's called skiing because you have skis on. So if you're actually Tommying down it, you're like, well, if your skis didn't fly off, you skied it. <laughs> All right. Food for thought. People feel free to weigh in on whether tomahawking counts as skiing. <laughs> totally. Uh, <laughs> all right. Let's talk about some news stories. Where would you like us to start? Uh, this was an interesting one that popped up into my news feed. And um, it was an announcement that the U.S. Alpine ski team is now the stiffle or stifle U.S. Alpine ski team. I don't. I needed a phonetic spelling for it in this article. Um, it didn't have it, but now it's the Stifle. Even though that kind of almost sounds like a Austrian name for a slope on the Hanenkam or whatnot, it's actually a, a, an investment bank and wealth management firm from St. Louis, Missouri. So. Uh, yeah, kind of like we name stadiums, like, you know, the, yeah. the Staples Center or the Crypto.com Center. We now have that yeah. in our nationalist uh, teams for skiing. Um, I can say the responses from what I saw weren't very good. What's your take on it? How do you feel about that? I... I think this one ruffled your feathers a bit more than it ruffled mine. You know, we have seen this because I, I, you know, am so accustomed to it or one might say numb to it. You know, the NBA, right, has gone through this um, recently. We've had naming rights on stadiums forever, you know, and I, I guess for me, the biggest thing is I want the U.S. Alpine team to be well-funded that's my number one. And so how do we get there? How do we make that possible? 
and if this is the the mechanism that was you know necessary to to reach that end, I think I'm okay with it. Yeah, and I and I generally agree with you. Like it being involved with the U.S. ski team for a very long time when I was on that path as a ski racer and just knowing some of the internal dynamics, it's a really hard thing to fund. Um, so what do you have to do to fund it? Because it's like all you're doing is it's a marketing potential for brands to come in. Like So a Visa, a Spider, they come Land Rover, they come in and sponsor and then they get their logo on, you know, the speed suits and whatnot. And that's part of the funding that supports the entire U.S. ski team, even people that aren't sponsored by those brands, um, you know, the D teams and all the developmental programs and whatnot, that it helps with that. So if they have to do it, they have to do it. I think it's just a bummer in general because of the fact that, one, it just shows like this is what happens when your, your national sports teams are not funded by the nation that they represent. And so many nations uh most Western European nations, Canada, all these teams have funding from the government so they can eliminate this fact that they need private corporate sponsorship to to make the success happen. It's like pretty astounding to think of the level of success American athletes have had on the international stage with almost no governmental funding. And like, I mean, the, the US, US could have it. It'd be like, the most minute sliver of a portion of their budget and would drastically change how we support our athletes and the development and pipeline of these athletes. And it's always been that our government doesn't fund it. I, I, I almost feel like as a voting topic, a lot of Americans would be in support of it. Like it would be interesting to see if it came out on ballots or politicians ran on it because you're like, we value sports so much as Americans. I wonder if we would like, hey, like let's chip in like half million dollars to the U.S. ski team. It's going to go a long way. So it's kind of a, a bummer. I did laugh in general of the overall take, though, that just the notion of having a corporation in front of the nation just felt very symbolic to me as just America as a whole, like holding up the corporate, uh, the corporate world as like the most important aspect. Like now the corporation is in front of the, the national pride. Um, it just kind of had some unique symbolism to me because those other things like basketball teams, those are private businesses. They're, you know, they're for-profit entities. So whatever, if you're the Rakuten warriors with a like, you know, little thing on it, I still don't even know Rakuten is, I know it's on there, but, <laughs> and I watch like every warriors game. So it's kind of funny, but, um, uh, but for something like this, where it's like, they're not trying to make money, they're trying to support athletes and sports sports in general it's uh it was pretty symbolic in my opinion um the the one thing too though i do i still need a pronunciation guide stiffle stifle stiffler <laughs> i'm going with stifle stifle which is, but sounds kind of negative my guess <laughs> we're gonna stifle the usd I, team <laughs> wow okay Cody Townsend, ladies and gentlemen, uh, his views on corporations <laughs> and sponsorships. There you have it. Well, yeah, again, my number one, I I want to see 
the U.S. Alpine team, well-funded. And there's just, we hear so many stories from different places, different countries and the rest of hardworking athletes just trying to figure it out almost against, if not all odds, many odds because of a lack of funding. And so I like the idea that um, our U.S. athletes hopefully are now in a position to be better funded and not have to work four jobs in addition to trying to compete at a high level on the international stage. So that's my take. Yeah. And it's funny too, like I I remember one of the Olympics, the Home Depot had all these ads about each of these athletes are working at Home Depot. And it felt very like we support our, our American athletes. And I was like, this is offensive. Like the fact that they're like working at Home Depot while like training to throw a discus the hundred yards, like what really? Like they can't be like, maybe just sponsor them, just give them a bunch of money so they can do their sport. You're making them work the aisles and at Home Depot so they can train for the Olympics. I was like, this is terrible. Okay. All right. Where are we going next? Um, oh, more just uh, juicy news and easy topics to talk about. So this is something mm. I kind of saw a little, there wasn't too much, uh, there wasn't articles about it, but something that kind of blew up on social media. Um, it's not too much new because this is an old topic. We haven't talked about it too much, but, um, it, the, the solution to it was more talked about in the, in, on social media. And I kind of want to talk with you. So, um, the, what was brought up was that Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, listed as the business, not the ownership group, um, we're donating to politicians like Lauren Boebert. And we're in the top like six or top 10 of the amount of donations I gave um, to Lauren Boebert, who is obviously a very, very controversial uh, congressman from Colorado. And she's gained a large national following because of so many controversial things she's done said acted just one of those kind of new age politicians that almost dominates the media because of just how inane they act in person and how like just outside of any sort of norm they act so um in our world and the outdoor world um ski world which i'd say mainly uh is a liberal leaning group were yeah i mean that's debatable but i would say is that yeah i don't even know if that's true to be honest god it feels like if we're going through all skier visits and we're just talking about the united states yeah if you're going through that i don't know but i'm saying like people that live in mountain towns and are voting in these towns i would say in general are are on the liberal side i mean you look at like jackson hole teton county it's like the one dot of blue in a sea of red for wyoming yeah. so like in Fair. those regards okay. yes i would say they're on the more liberal leaning so a lot of people were disagreeing with this and calling for boycotts and not and whatnot of jackson hole um my first question is like should we care could we do something about it if you do disagree <laughs> Good question, Cody. First of all, I just, just for people listening, if they're like, well, how much money are we talking about here? Right. The stated number is $8,700, which frankly, that like in the scheme of things, that feels close enough to zero to like, why would you bother? And this is, but to me, it's like our political 
campaign finance system is so weird and so broken that you're like, sure, that is the publicly stated maximum amounts you can give to just the politician and their campaigns. Like we have limits for that, federal limits, like what, $5,600 for each individual and whatnot. But so much of the money is going into political action committees that are unlimited in the what they can spend. They're like sort of disconnected from the um, the they're actually technically legally supposed to be disconnected from the campaign itself, but are like have this kind of weird shadowy sort of support of uh, of it. So to me, it's just like a signifier that like, if you're doing this, you're just publicly stating we support this person. It's not even about the money. So it's to me, the money doesn't matter. It's just like coming out like we're supportive of this person. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I personally have no time for this particular political person at all. And yet, you know, man, we feels like we have talked politics a lot in our reviewing the news segments, but you know, my stance, uh, it is a free country. I do feel like the onus is on both parties, all parties to make the case for candidates or not for certain candidates. Right. And so I just don't, know how much I want to go down the road of like, well, they did this. So, I mean, again, your freedom, boycott whoever you want, like boycott everything on earth. Like that's your absolute right to do so. But man, this, it sort of brings me back a little bit to this idea. Like, do I need to agree with like every single thing you've ever done or said in order to like, be friends with you, not publicly boycott you, right? Like, and I just, I worry about that path. You know, I like talking with people with whom I disagree. That's why I talk to you all the time, Cody. Just kidding. But um, you know what I mean? Like I, this, I just don't, I, I like, I like disagreement. I like then thoughtful debate about disagreement. I like the idea of rolling into a conversation with a real willingness to listen, figure out what we have in common, figure out what I may have gotten wrong, some of my wrong assumptions. And I just think that is how a democracy ought to work rather than what sometimes feels like, oh, well, so-and-so said this or so-and-so supported that person who I can't stand. So therefore I'm done. You know what I mean? Like, again, people, individuals boycott everything on earth you want to boycott. But I, I just, I'm talking in generalities here, and it, but it feels like a weird general position to hold because ultimately you end up in a room by yourself. I agree. I think actually you don't end up in a room by yourself. You end up in a room in a corner of social media with the exact same people who are saying the exact same things. Gotcha. Um, yeah. But okay, fair. You know what I do think is that like one, you're talking about kind of the the discourse between each other. Like I have a neighbor here. He's a close friend. We disagree politically. He supports people I wouldn't support, but I'm still going to be friends with him. I think that's where we want to work. And I think that's where most Americans do work. I think social media has amplified this division between people when I think actually there is a little bit less division um, uh, between what we see on social media, what we see in media in general. But what this thing brings up to me in general is that like, you can't have a discussion with a corporation and that the influence of money in politics is so much 
greater than our individual discourse. And so you want to have a conversation with someone who you disagree with, like a Jackson Hole, but donating that money, but you can't. So the only way you can do it is by affecting their bottom line in some sort of way, call for a boycott or whatever, if that is something you agree with so so heavily. And that's where I, I it just brings up this this other factor to me too, is like, Ski resorts, ski areas are operating on public land, and they essentially have geographic monopolies on that public land and access for that. Most of them don't allow uphill access. You can't go there unless you're buying uh, a lift pass to use their ropeway system to get up the mountain. It's kind of the way we set up. And to me, you're like, wait, shouldn't maybe at that point these things be a little bit more neutral when it comes to politics. Um, just like the fact that there's the division, the supposed division between church and state where it's like, okay, you're a church. You're not, a, we won't tax you. We're, you're separate. And then there's that other question of like, well, then they're campaigning and potentially donating uh, money to politicians. You're like, what are we doing here? And so I, that's where I just, it brings up the question to me, boycott if you want, go ski there if you want, but there isn't much options. If you live in Teton County and that is your home ski area and you disagree so much, you're like, well, I can't, I'm going to only be backcountry skiing and this entire area of public land is completely closed off to me. So that's where I just almost think in the terms of like, if you are operating on public land, maybe you should just be uh, uh, politically neutral. Um, because yeah, like we're, we're, I don't know, it, we're going to a place that we all pay tax money to close off for public access. So that was my only thing that I brought up uh, that kind of popped up into my yeah. mind. And I think that's reasonable, right? I think that take is reasonable. Like, why are you weighing in and contributing? And yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, ownership group, we've, talked about that i think this has got brought up like maybe a year ago and if the ownership and the individuals want to donate you're like okay whatever but this is yeah. actually the mountain resort the corporation donating so it's a little different aspect to it so and at that point you're kind of like well maybe we should uh, change the laws that seems like a far-fetched idea to make it so that things that are operating on public land are more politically neutral or not allowed to donate just because yeah there's not you, you can't have that conversation with them you can't speak their voice um, and their voice in our political system you know citizens united ruled the fact that a dollar is the equivalent of discourse and that's you're like well how do i negotiate with dollars at a company that's way bigger than the amount of dollars I have. Well, the only way I can is by not giving them my dollars. So, but that's kind of eliminated if you, they have a ge geographic monopoly. Let's talk about more depressing news. Yeah, no, and is, I kind of wanted to put this in here because we probably, if there is a diverse political opinions, we probably seem like we tend to talk about liberal aspects and whatnot, even though we tend to be a little measured with our takes. But this one was pretty interesting to me. It doesn't involve necessarily uh, the outdoors because it's more involved in the city, but an outdoors company. So um, the the headline was this, an outside business journal, um, Cotopaxi closes San Francisco store after repeated break-ins. And uh, Cotopaxi is a small boutique -y, 
kind of outdoor brand. Um, they're really progressive with their values in terms of supply chain, of terms of giving back, of showing how you know environmentally friendly they are with social issues and whatnot. So it was kind of like pretty shocking to see them closing a store in what many outside of San Francisco would say is like the most liberal city in America, um, specifically because of things like crime, which a lot of right-leaning people would accuse San Francisco of being completely mismanaged because of essential liberal progressive um, leadership that has been running the country. So it, it was shocking in that regard because we see it, I think, in the public sphere, how so many like Fox News talking points are about cities, liberal cities being crime ridden and just absolutely mismanaged and criminals are just walking free on the streets. And, you know, on the liberal side, they just be like, no, that's not that way. No, that's not that way. And it's just a very black and white argument. But here's like a perfect kind of article that's like, no, we probably do have to address this because here's a very progressive outdoor company that is leaving San Francisco because of of crime because of break-ins because of things that are actually affecting the city and affecting its occupants pretty heavily. I'll ask you since you know you live in California and I'm just over here in Colorado but I see these headlines and stuff about yeah in California like police aren't going to go after burglars and stuff like that and I'm like is this like a South Park episode like what's happening and is this policy or take, is this uh, like, hey, we're not going to prosecute burglaries or even go after like literally someone, I could just walk into your house and start trying to steal your shit and you could call the cops. They're like, oh, it's cool. Like we know Jonathan, he's, he's a pretty good guy. Don't worry about it. Like, is this because of lack of funding or is this some sort of, um, I know not what, societal new value system yeah i i mean we're talking large very large complex problems and no there's truth to it like i've had my car broken into in san francisco you call the cops and it's just like nah, whatever you know i don't know if you heard of that infamous story of a news news team setting up a sting car um they're they were filming it the sting car got broken into and they're trying to like chase the guy down and meanwhile their van their news van got broken into <laughs> while they left the news van so like that literally is what's happening in san francisco it is known you drive in you park in that city you do not leave a single thing visible in your car it, your window will get smashed and things will get taken out of it i mean it's like you'll get uh robbed for an iphone cable if you leave it out so there are serious issues i personally like my theories on it are more related to just housing um uh, some of the articles i've read when it comes to you know policing and whatnot is one of the more interesting takes was that like Police don't live in the communities they police anymore. Um, talking about New York, talking about San Francisco, how they're coming from outside the city. And so they don't have necessarily the connection to that place. It is an unaffordable place to live in these cities. And that all comes down to just housing. Like you, we're, we're not building housing quick enough. We're not creating uh, opportunities for people to build housing. It's just a complete nightmare. Um, a lot of it, which I don't blame necessarily on like leadership and politics, but just like one of the biggest factors I've seen in uh, some podcasts I've listened to is like the whole direct democracy um, 
notion that any person can have a um, something to say about it is actually one of the worst things for it. Because like, let's say as a city or San Francisco, you're like, we 70% approve of developing a bunch of housing. We're going to put bond measures and new taxes. We're going to build a bunch of new housing. And all it takes is one person with a bit of cash and some good lawyers to hold that up for years and stall everything. And those are still affecting things. It's affecting things in my hometown. They're trying to build some new uh, bed and breakfast and it's just getting held up by lawsuits. It's, uh, you know, there's a new development across the street that I'm a bit in support of and it's going to be in the same sort of vein. And it's just, there's systematic issues that I don't think are necessarily 100% because of of a certain political party and governance because it is a nationwide uh, epidemic of housing. But I do think it is exacerbated by more progressive politics that like, hey, we we need to make it easier to build housing. Um, And that's really what it comes down to. It's it's a struggle to survive in a place like San Francisco where, you know, a one bedroom apartment is going to be renting for 4,000 a month. So, um, the people that are left on the streets are like, the only way to kind of survive is to participate in crime. So I look at issues, you know, always a little bit more systematically. And I think this news of Cotopaxi leaving is like those notions of like, Hey, we got to do something. Um, I mean, yeah. uh, it's said in the article is like, uh, as quoted by the CEO, Davis Smith of like, thanks to the LinkedIn post, San Francisco city leaders reached out to me and we're going to meet tomorrow. Um, he hadn't been getting anything b- before then and before he went public with it. So I think it's just really important for whatever part you in to acknowledge your own party's failures and think independently. And this is one of those things where you're like, Hey, there is some issues that uh, liberal leadership has to address because it is creating problems and creating problems for people and for business. I have a potential solution for you, Cody. What's that? We just we just need to announce the new Stifle San Francisco <laughs> Police Department, and then there will be new funding. And potentially, you know, related housing. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the that's the obvious solution here. I just I actually think it's a little different. I think we just need to announce and acknowledge the new owner of San Francisco. Um, he also owns L.A. as well. His name's Christian McCaffrey. <laughs> And he is the greatest man <laughs> I was just gonna to go come here. into San Francisco in a long time, and I'm very excited by this. He, he, uh, oh yeah. If we maybe we just put him at the top, and everyone would just be like, "Yes, whatever, Christian. We'll do whatever you want." <laughs> so I was gonna say I needed a, a bit of a palate cleanser after all this politics talk. So I was gonna suggest we just go to the NFL, but then you beat me to it. First of all, one thing. When the Christian McCaffrey trade was announced, I first of all, I'm offended that you did not acknowledge my text when I told you uh, I am I feel very happy for Christian McCaffrey to like get out of Carolina and go to a 49ers team. But I am also mad at you about this for some reason, like I am mad at you and I know it doesn't make any sense, but this is my exact feeling in time. I got no reply. And then the next text was like talking about how you should have named your child Christian. So 
Um, here we are talking about the NFL. Yeah, no, you said, um, you've always accused me, you're like, why didn't you name your son Debo? Well, his middle name yeah. is Christian, and I was just forecasting the fact that we were going to get McCaffrey this year. So uh, I just knew, I had a feeling he was going to, the McCaffrey and Shanahan's have been just tight since they were children, and we knew he was going to come home, come back to the Bay Area, and, you know, just uh, be the greatest running back in the history of the game. <laughs> You know, there's still time. You could still legally change Indy's name to Debo Christian, Christian Townsend. <laughs> totally. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Yeah, that'd be like, yeah. wow, wow, you have uh, you have a problem, sir. <laughs> have you been seeing what my bears are doing? We just are trading everyone on defense. I literally think I might have to go to Chicago and like suit up, like at cornerback. I don't, I don't know that, I don't know that we're going to be able to field a defense. No, and they didn't look very good this last week against the Cowboys. So yeah, uh, yeah. And I had some. I had one of my key picks for the week written on the on the the Bears covering their spread, and they did not cover the spread. No, they no, they did not. General feelings, thoughts on this NFL season. By the way, this counts, people, as we've discussed. Most NFL games are played outside. We are reviewing outdoors news, so stop it. Thoughts? Are you enjoying this season? Um, I think it's a weird season. It's weird because we're watching the demise of the two of the greatest quarterbacks of all time being Tom Brady and, uh, and Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers. Um, I'm really, really enjoying the failures of Russell Wilson probably have a lot of uh, Colorado followers, but I despised that guy for a long time in Seattle. Always thought he was corny as hell. So to watch him kind of fail and actually kind of watch Seattle be really good is kind of making me happy, which is they're our rival and I should hate them, but I've been kind of like enjoying that. So, um, but from a personal standpoint, it's been a little up and down where the Niners are ranked 32nd in consistency. So week to week, I don't know whether I'm going to be very depressed going to bed or very happy. So it's been a little struggle in that sort of way we did also talk this was maybe a week or two ago about it is just really sad how much a stupid game on sunday will affect my mood for like the next two to three days yep it's not great it's really like if i could change that about my life i'd love to actually change that but um, here we are. Yeah, I know. It's the same boat. And I'm like, it's, seriously, well, like halfway through that Rams game, I was like, man, I'm going to be depressed again. I'm going to feel like <laughs> crap. And then we won and I was all happy. And I was like, why? <laughs> How do I let this affect me so much? But it's also kind of the fun, to, the fun of fandom. And that's why we're fans. We're fanatics. Fun it's like, you, that's, you know, you, you go through the, the suffering and the joy and that's what makes it fun. That's something enjoyable, a release from the normal world and talking about politics like we just did. So now our, is that, yeah. is our yeah. palate, is your palate clean now? You feeling good? It's getting better. I, I am actually going to go uh, to the Bears Dolphins game in Chicago this Sunday. So oh, um, nice. if, if, I, I don't love our chances because, again, I don't think we have a full defense to put on the field, but I'm sneaking in uh, one. I, I, now it's kind of – I like to try to sneak in one game before ski season starts and we go like fully full, full ski send. Um, so I'm going to go sneak a game in. I don't love our chances of winning that game, but, um, you know, we'll see. Fandom. Random. Where are we going next? You had this one. Actually, Luke had this one. Um, Luke's, 
I would say I gotta I gotta commend Luke. He's been really a good contributor to her. I want to bring Luke back up though when we get to what we're reading and watching because there's kind of a something I find really funny about Luke. But yeah, each 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 uh, episode we do like get in the dock and it's like Luke has already beat us in there with like stuff we should be discussing. I I don't know. There's so many angles to this next story. I actually want to hear you like what did you think was most interesting about this? The fact that the headlines were a bit different than the actual meat of the story. Um, okay. But uh, for the most part, you know, the, uh, we're referring to a pink bike article, which was a Colorado hunting nonprofit is offering a reward for turning in unsanctioned trail builders. And it, it is kind of alarming. You're like, ooh, whoa, like hunters versus bikers, which ultimately it kind of is framed it as such. Um, we'll go back to the outside article, which we can kind of get into probably a little bit later in this conversation, but it's uh, the the headline there was, why did a hunting nonprofit put a bounty on mountain bikers, which is definitely far more inflammatory of a headline. But um, ultimately, the story was that uh, backcountry hunters and anglers, a hunting education and advocacy organization, um, were offering $500 reward for reports or information leading to convictions of those responsible for illegal trail construction on public lands. So ultimately, what that comes down to is like, you know, I think a lot of people, if you were to poll a majority of a population that isn't maybe necessarily pure mountain bikers, would would agree with them. Like building trails illegally in wilderness is not a great thing to do. Like we're just introducing more harm to the environment, more natural erosion. We're not doing, you know, blocking potential wildlife corridors, all these kind of things. We're like, that's not that great. So ultimately, like, yeah, maybe we should make sure that these crack down on. The fact that it's coming from a hunting organization, I think really makes it much more inflammatory in general. If it was like, say, a bike organization um, that was doing it, it doesn't seem like it would be as divisive. This is all of a sudden pitting hunters versus bikers. And that's where I think this gets a little heated and and generally probably is pushing everyone into their own corners. Yep. I want to just read what Luke wrote in the doc. And if he listens to this, his face just went white. Luke, Luke is not known for his love of conflict, you know, but this is what he wrote. And I think he's right. Luke wrote, this seems like a very obtusely executed attempt to reach an end goal that both parties actually agree on, and it is just going to create way more unnecessary friction between the two groups. That's the take. I mean, Luke kind of nailed take. it. Thank you, Luke. And he had a great word, <laughs> great use of the word obtusely. I really like that in that. Yeah, so, it was well done. Um, no, and I and that's where, like, I can, guess we can get into this, like, media conversation, which is that headline, why did a hunting nonprofit put a bounty on mountain bikers? That, uh, it's so misleading and so unfortunate in many ways. And I get it, but it's our, the, the system of cl- clicks being the most important metric in journalism these days it sucks because you're just that is far more inflammatory and i like it kind of sums it up but it is real inflammatory in the way that that is worded yeah i don't know that's all i got and and i mean look you know 
we get to choose our headlines around here and we just don't do that stuff. And maybe, you know, we're doing it all wrong and would have two to three times the traffic or whatever. But I also just think like consumers of media get to choose where they go (laughs) and, and outlets get to write clickbaity, misleading headlines. And then everybody gets to match up and go read or not read whatever they want to. Totally. And that's, I think, like one of the things is as consumers, you can just be more conscious of that and go to the... the Yeah, the, be more conscious. Yeah, and just be like, oh my God, that's so inflammatory. But if as the first time you saw that notion come up, this article come up, I'd probably click on it because you're like, what? And then you read the meat of it and that's the hopefully the goal of it, that it's well-written enough where you're like, oh, okay, well, it wasn't as bad as what I, what I think, but it's still going to be a kind of thing where it is a bit inflammatory in that sort of way, because I agree with Luke, like a majority of people probably don't want illegal trail building. And the, in the pink bike article, the the guy, the, the anonymous person they talk to who builds trails, you're kind of like, man, that's just not that cool. Like, it, you know, I, he says it provides him a sense of kind of peace and he's just out in the wilderness alone. You're like, yeah, but you're not improving upon the wilderness. You're actually potentially making things worse. Like there's an aspect of wilderness, we'll get into this later, where you can improve upon wilderness and you can make it better. But like building new mountain bike trails just because you feel like it or you saw, like even going as such a sighting, like uh, natural, like game trails to kind of build a trail on you're like that's not cool you're like creating a complete diversion for for other animals and their migration habits so um it is it is unfortunate i kind of almost you kind of wish it was like a not coming from a hunter's organization or it was more anonymous because I think the look of it is does look bad pitting hunters versus mountain bikers. Um, but ultimately, like maybe this comes back to the fact that like we just don't we need the government to step in a little bit heavier. We need the National Forest Service to come in a little heavier on this and have more funding, have more policing of this, um, because, yeah, I think most people are against illegal trails. Well, we're not going to go back and talk about more NFL, so I think we should move to Canadian news. Yes, my Canadian news story of the month, um, which was, this was a ridiculous headline. Can you correctly spell the most commonly misspelled words in Canada? Just like very BuzzFeed style. I think I was on like the Daily Hive, which I don't even know what that organization is. But um Whatever it was, I just thought it was so perfect, the misspelled words. Sure, there may be a potentially a little bit hard, and maybe Americans would struggle with some of these words, but it just represented so much about Canadians and what I view of Canadians. So some of the misspelled words were sergeant. Um, which to me, it was just like, yeah, Canadians are not very military oriented like we as Americans are. So makes sense. Um, supersede, they don't know how to spell. And it's because Canadians don't think of themselves above other people very often. I loved that. Protester. They don't commonly misspell the word protester because there's not much to protest in Canada about. Life is really good. It rates really high on the National Happiness Index scores. So like, yeah, of course they would uh, misspell that. Um, And then my favorite one was drunkenness. 
They don't know how to spell drunkenness, which uh, goes into the fact that maybe it's just because the Canadians do like to drink their beer and might be uh, uh, getting themselves drunk a little bit much. So maybe they just forgot how to spell it while they're out there chugging on uh, Pilsners. Yeah, that's just that's just called like Tuesday evening. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh man, I can always like, it is, that's one thing you were just talking to Hoji and like, and uh, Hoji and Rubens and I've been enough trips with them and skied with them enough. And those boys can pound some beers. Like Hoji is one of the most amazing guys where he'll put down a, like a, a case of beer himself and be up earlier than you and breaking trail before you and then just do it day to day. The Their ability, the Canadian ability to pound beer after a huge day in the mountains is unparalleled. I've not seen anything else like it. <laughs> That's just called being Canadian, maybe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. By the way, question for you. You know, when I was talking to Marcus, I made the comment that Italy is probably the best country in the world. But if we were to go, I, I want your opinion, Italy versus Canada. Mm -hmm. I mean, Canada, like great skiing in Northern Italy, but Canada clearly wins for skiing, has to. Definitely. It has to. Like, yeah, definitely. it, it just it gets much more snow. And there's a lot right. more of what I really value in skiing of wilderness of being off the grid the ability to kind of explore is just that much greater um I, as far as european nations and for skiing i think italy is the most kind of uh underrated though because when it comes to skiing like it's cheaper there the food is amazing and there is really high quality skiing like we tend to think of uh france switzerland and austria as the the ski nations but like italy it is high, high value. And every time I have skied in Italy, I've been pretty blown away just about kind of everything about it. Um, I still have yet to go to the Dolomites. I still haven't been to Tyrol. So I really would love to go visit Marcus and see his kind of home, home mountains because so many amazing skiers, mountaineers, climbers have all come out of the South Tyrol region and the Tyrolean region that it's just like there's, there's something to the water in the mountains there for sure. Okay. But more controversially, if we're just talking about what's the better country, Canada or Italy? For me, it's Canada. You're taking Canada? I would. I mean, because yeah. I would move there a lot quicker than I would Italy. And maybe it's just because I don't have as much experience with it. I've spent so much time in Canada. But um, as far as like underrated favorite nations in the world, Argentina is high, high on the list for me. Um Amazing food, amazing wilderness, amazing skiing, just so beautiful. People are just like so happy and just like party centric and it's just friendly and fun. Like every time I've been in Argentina, it's been a while. Um, I just, I'm like, oh yeah, this place is so amazing. As far as an underrated country, I think like Argentina is high on the list. Basically, Italy just has the best food in my view. It does. And so it it basically colors all. It blinds me to every other element of anything. I I agree with that. Best lunch I've ever had was in Cormier, and I don't know where it was. I don't know how to get to this place, but it skied down somewhere in Cormier. Ended up at some hut in the bottom of this valley. I don't have no idea where I was, and all I remember was we had this like ten course meal. 
And I remember that one of the courses was just a half a baked potato. Just that's it. Nothing like not all the toppings like we get. It was the best potato I've ever had in my life. And I'm like, (laughs) how did you make this potato so good? It's just like an open half of a potato. And this is the best potato I've ever had. So your notion of like, yes, Italy has the best food is, I think, quite accurate because I've had that experience and it was incredible. Huh. I love the potato story. (laughs) Okay. Okay. We've got two Mountain Town advice questions we're going to do this time around. Um, So this first one comes in from Billy and he writes, Hey, I've been in and out of Mountain Towns my whole adult life and it is pretty easy to get a seasonal job on a ski hill or working retail in town. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on finding jobs in mountain towns that can actually pay the bills, support a family, etc. Could you folks give a realistic view of how most people make a living in mountain towns? And frankly, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Do you need to be a business owner or some sort or invested in a local business? Other than remote workers, doctors, and lawyers, what sorts of medium-high paying jobs have you seen people get in these towns to make a comfortable living but still enjoy living there? Thanks for all you do. That's from Billy. Yeah, that's a it's a very tough question. And there are good paying jobs in mountain towns. This professional kind of level, not talking like he was saying, doctors and lawyers, but just that next step down. Um, key infrastructure jobs like working for the public utilities departments, working for um the the hospitals, working for um the you know being a firefighter, a policeman, all that stuff. There, there, those jobs exist. The problem is it's just it's coming down to housing. And we're facing this kind of at arcade, and we've faced this for a long time. We pay really well. Like our jobs and our like competitive salary compared to uh other people within these towns is is a high paying job and a lot of these kind of small companies do exist whether you know you're a big agnes and steamboat whether you're arcade and tahoe there's like these kind of professional business jobs that can't exist and they pay six figure salaries um the problem is these days your salaries are competing with like for instance here the bay area because we there is so much remote work that housing is getting gobbled up by people that are being paid five to eight hundred thousand dollars a year and can work remote. Um, the fact that housing has become the issue here, where even if you have a high paying job um, in the low six figures, it's really really hard to afford housing and even have that stability of housing because we're watching so many homes renters getting kicked out, flipped into Airbnbs, houses sold because of the market so inflated, all these kind of things. So um, I would say they do exist. And just because I know I have a company that provides those jobs, but I know when we put out job listings, like the number one thing we go up against is getting people to move to town um, because we are recruiting wide area. And then, you know, we can offer a job and it has happened before where person accepted. And then like within four months, I I can't figure out a place to live up there. And then you kind of have to rearrange your priorities, see if they can work remote or if you um, need that person in office, then you're going to have to move on. So um, I 
want more people that are talented moving to mountain towns because these jobs exist. Our biggest problem at this point is housing. And I think it's a, as we talked about before, it's a national crisis and it's really acute in mountain towns. I think that is exactly the right answer uh, in terms of identifying, like getting to the heart of the problem. If there were more places, reasonable places for people to live, talent would come in. And so, yeah, I, I mean, we have talked about this a lot. I don't actually know kind of as an overall picture if we are seeing in a number of mountain towns significant movement on this front to address this problem. So, but I guess if we're trying to speak more directly to Billy's question, like let's say you have sort of figured out the housing thing, <laughs> which we're we're in a real like chicken and the egg thing. And I, I don't actually even know how we reverse out of this, but let's say you have figured out the housing thing. I mean, I do think it is about one, we've talked about this before, but be on point. Like you better be real professional, showing up on time, doing great work because of the housing issue that you have just identified. So many businesses in mountain towns are trying to find, frankly, not even good people, just people. Right? I know here there are a number of good companies that are looking for folks, talented folks. And so, again, Cody, you are right to say we've got to first figure out the housing stuff. But if that part of the puzzle has been solved, I think, frankly, picking the mountain town of your choice and starting to contact interesting companies, explaining what your skill set is. I think we might be in a position where you have more leverage as a hardworking, sharp potential employee because businesses need these people and are looking hard for them. Totally. And the number one reason, like we've explored this with Arcade, is that the number one reason a lot of companies of our size in our world are based in Southern California is not because of a cultural fit. It's not because of like the shipping there. Uh, like it's because there's more people, there's more talent to draw from. Um, and that is, it is tough in mountain towns to pull talent to your company. And if you're a successful business, you need, you're only as good as the people that work there. And we've, we've been able to find people and we've brought people in from afar. And, you know, we have local people that are very talented working for us, but as new, as growth continues, as new job openings continue, you need people with experience and you need people potentially from out of town to come here. And, uh, I know, we're looking for it well, right now. We have job listings out there. Um, I know other companies. You got companies like Jones, which is based here. You have two big companies that are based in this in this small little region. So um, I would say now is as good a time of ever if it wasn't for housing for talented people to move to mountain towns and get well-paying jobs because there is more and more companies that are being based in mountain towns. Yep. So good luck, Billy, and to everyone, and may our town leaders continue to work on the housing issue. It's just an essential part of mountain town communities, and there's no way around that. Mm -hmm.
Okay. Ready for Mountain Town advice question number two? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. This is coming from Rob from Munich, Germany. Uh, He says, hey, Jonathan and Cody, I've found myself embroiled in a virtual mountain town, aka social media debate, over the definition of wilderness. And I think this is right up your alley for a conversation on the podcast. Outside Magazine recently posted a link on Instagram to a story about a woman who was injured on the Colorado Trail near Deer Park. After crawling to the Animus River, she was spotted by a passenger on the Durango-Silverton train and saved. Outside and other media outlets characterized this as, quote, hiker lost in wilderness, saved by woman on train. My comment on the story was that if she was saved by a woman on a passing train, she wasn't in the wilderness. I'm not saying it isn't wild or remote, but I don't understand how a train and wilderness can coexist in the same place. John Muir would throw up his hands in despair at what we have settled for today. In a recent response to my comment on Instagram, I've been referred to as, quote, some old white dude who has never been there. And I'll happily admit I'm wrong, but I've discussed this with my climbing and skiing buddies and they agree with me. So what do you say? Was the woman rescued from the wilderness or perhaps more importantly, what is wilderness? First thing, don't just say like they're an old white person that's never been there and so they don't understand it. Don't do this. We've talked about this on social media. Don't argue like that. Just like talk, have a discussion, like treat social media like you're talking someone face to face. It'll be a much better place. Um, As far as the meat of this issue, definition of wilderness. um, It's a really tough one. I think I'm leaning towards Rob in general, that there's a railway going through it. You're not necessarily in a true wilderness. But then this goes back to what is a true wilderness? Because we have a definition in our modern world, our Western kind of governmental system or society that is very based on the fact that there are areas of the earth that are untrammeled by man where humans do not remain and the 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 wild remains in this primeval character we're just saying like humans aren't there at all so that's what wilderness is and this being there's a train going through it doesn't define it as wilderness in that definition but there's more than one definition of wilderness and when I I go back to some of the lessons I've learned from friends that have Native American ancestry stories and and um, and kind of education, it's like that that definition is a bit flawed. And there's actually some roots of kicking people out of their land that that definition is based upon. Um, you know, Native people have been improving the land for thousands of years from irrigation to fire to clearing springs there's ways that you can improve the wilderness you can make it more either habitable for humans or for other people or preserve its character just having um you know tall underbrush and like 
trees falling everywhere isn't necessarily the best thing for it. The other thing is like the wilderness is everywhere. There is not one place on this planet that is not touched by humans. Whether, you know, climate change has no borders of what's a national park and what's not. Uh, smog does not. Fire does not. If we continue to talk about fire, every single forest within North America has been touched by human hands in the fact that they put fires out. So to me, like, we can kind of say one of two things that everything is wilderness and we need to treat it as such and acknowledge the fact that everything we this whole entire planet we live on is touched by humans and we need to focus on improving wilderness um uh, or we can just say these spaces are closed off and we're never going to touch them but then you're going into the like well it still is kind of touched so these definitions are they're 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 controversial in many ways i personally subscribe to kind of a blend of the fact that we do need to protect areas in this day and age because if we don't, then things like strip mining, things like um, oil extraction, mineral extraction, business development are going to happen. But like at the same time, you're like, okay, I go through like a national park and there's roads everywhere and there's picnic tables and all that. You're like, this isn't wilderness. This isn't untrammeled by man. So uh, I, I, in this specific question, I kind of align with, Rob in that fact that um, it's not technically wilderness. There is humans there, but ultimately like we need to factor this more in that like we need to focus on the fact that it's like leaving wilderness entirely cut up from humans isn't happening and will never happen. And therefore we need to reframe the wilderness as something that we go into as humans and we potentially can improve upon as humans. Yep. I think I agree with that. As opposed to a definition of wilderness just means no human ever goes there for any reason. It's completely untouched. I understand that definition. It's clean and coherent, but um, I don't think we are in an age where that is the best or or only understanding of wilderness. And then because especially if that means so then everything else is a free for all. Yeah. And that's where it does get this, this definitions of like, well, that's city, we can do whatever the hell we want with it. Yeah. And this is wilderness, we can't do anything with it. And you're like, no, like, what we do in the city impacts what we do in the wilderness. And to me, you know, I've been engaged in these debates and having to deal with it with national parks, with the filming with the 50 and all this stuff for a while. And it's, it's wild to me to be like, going into these places, I've had comments in there, like, we don't, we literally do not want people in this place. So we don't want any sort of filming in there because it might entice people to go there. And you're like, but this is our public land. This is like, if you have the the skills, the experience, the education to go into these places, isn't that what is the point? And like this definition of no humans and then humans on the other side of the border is like, I think it really clouds our way to solve issues. I think it like clouds our way, our definitions of of the this planet. Like we, we all live here. We all are impacting pretty much everything. So how can we do better to improve upon it? So I know this is like kind of going off a tangent on, on the actual advice, but it's like, yeah, I, uh, it's the, the definition of wilderness is a really tricky thing. And I'd like, the conversation here. I think 
these are important things for us as individuals to think through. What is your opinion on this? And then next step for communities to try to gain clarity on and how do they handle open spaces or potential development issues around local communities and the rest. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm happy for the question in the conversation because we all clearly need to think better about this stuff. Like <laughs> there isn't a scenario where just staying wishy-washy on it sort of is the better is going to lead to better ideas or solutions or paths going forward. No, and it's it's how I get into so many things. You know, you can get into these arguments that, you know, like when it comes to climbing skiing for lines and climbing in particular, people will be like, oh, you know, this was going on in the Himalaya. People, oh, they helicoptered to the base of this line, so it doesn't count. And you're like, so driving your car from Lhasa to the base of it does count? Like, where where are we going with these things? And like, uh, it, it just, we need a more holistic view of of our world and on our planet because it's just like we put these weird borderlines on, onto things because it makes it clean and easy to think about. It makes it easy for law, but it's like ultimately like we got to acknowledge the fact that like kind of nothing in the world is wilderness and or everything is wilderness because even if we built a city uh, like San Francisco right on the bay or like at one point that was just pure pristine like hills and untouched by humans and or improved upon and lived upon by and shared the space with other animals so yeah um my my definition is kind of it's wishy-washy but i think ultimately like just the more holistic view is better better view to have yeah all right we're talking about what we're reading and watching but i want to open (laughs) bringing luke kappa back in this cracked me up so much. I think last month yeah. in our doc that we have going, Luke put this uh, plea in that you and I should be watching the show Welcome to Wrexham. We guessed correctly. It's a soccer show. Uh, you may have. I don't recall that. I, I'm going to give you credit on that one. I don't remember what we said, but... uh. Okay, so Cody, let's say you got that one right. But we talked about like, yeah, we've never heard of it or I don't know, like seems like if it was any good, we would have heard of it. I did not have a, I talked to Luke Kappa every single day, like 10 times a day. Not one time did he mention like, hey man, like I listened to the episode with you and Cody and like, I can't believe you haven't heard of this show. The next time I heard anything about it was back in this doc. (laughs) So I've talked to Luke like 3000 times since our last reviewing the news and no mention of Welcome to Wrexham. But in our doc, he wrote, wow, figured you guys had heard of this show. But if you need more reason to watch... It's kind of like Drive to Survive, uh, which I have to confess I also don't know. Yeah, that's the but Formula produced One show. by. Oh, that's the okay. Yeah, see, you're the guy who likes the like little cars that go fast. Um, right. It's kind. It's kind of like Drive to Survive. Wait. I. Anyway, I'll keep reading. But produced by and featuring people with great senses of humor, combined with a bit of Ted Lasso. Luke, I'd love this. He now goes into our rating system. I'd give it a t- an 8 out of 10 on the rating system, but I think certain episodes are 10 out of 10. So mostly I think this is hilarious that Luke does not talk to me in real life about these things, but he will absolutely make time in our doc uh, to keep us updated. 
anyway, that's what I thought was hilarious about this. Um, I don't know. Thoughts, Cody? Yeah, I mean, the fact he put it in twice now, two months in a row, is obviously he's like really passionate about this. So I guess we do have to put it on our on our list to watch. Um, uh, yeah, I wish I don't even know what, what platform it's on, but I guess I got to look it up. So so a couple nights ago, I actually did. I think it's on Netflix. Mm. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It's on Hulu. Oh, OK, I think it's on Hulu. And I only know this because I. I'm going to talk about this in a second, but I I finished a rewatch of The Bear. I've gone through the season again. And so then it was like, oh, there's this Welcome to Wrexham thing. And so I I watched like 10 minutes of the opening episode. Um, I don't, from the opening 10 minutes, there is no similarity to Drive to Survive as far as I can tell. But it's just literally a documentary that like Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhaney, like they bought this club called Wrexham and it's just documenting that. So I can't say I was sucked in from the opening 10 or 15 minutes. I can, I can see where we could start getting some Ted Lasso vibes. I apparently Luke thinks there's some 10 out of 10 must watch episodes. That's where we are. All right. I'll trust it. I got to, so like I, I'm going to, I got to, I'm glad I have two shows so I can sign up for Hulu and maybe get through the trial period and watch two things. And then like, go off of it so i don't have to pay for it because i have too many subscriptions as it is and it's just like our subscription world it's so it's just gonna go back to basic cable we'll have all these bundles with everything at one point and everyone will be happy again but um uh you know like it was really annoying this last thursday night football game was it thursday it was or no not thursday night i forget what night it was but it was on oh the morning the london game was on espn plus you had to subscribe to it yeah i'm up at six in the morning with my kid and i was like cool turn on the football game oh no you have to subscribe it's ten dollars a month you're like jesus this is getting ridiculous like uh subscriptions everywhere so it's one of the Hmm. worst parts of our new media landscape but um (laughs) anyways uh welcome to rexham thanks for bringing it up again luke um what (laughs) i've been watching i did get to watch some stuff because i just had uh an international flight um to go to a couple meetings with some of my companies that i work for and i got to watch two things primarily oh actually i put three things i watched the hbo show done by uh tgr the edge of the earth um watched three of the four episodes and it was pretty good um I thought it was worthwhile. Um, You know, it's one of those things where you're kind of like when you're in this world and you're watching it, you know, the people in it. To me, it was like a little over dramatized. But that's kind of what you have to do for the general population. You have to explain what's going on. And for just kind of like I was talking about in the beginning of the episode, you kind of have to play it up a little bit sometimes because most people would think whatever they're doing is super scary, super gnarly. Um, I thought it was interesting. I thought the kayak episode was pretty interesting. I thought uh, Griff and Jeremy and Elena Heights episode up in Alaska was great. So um, I would put it definitely like, uh, it's a good watch, like seven out of 10. You like outdoor sports, uh, go watch it. Um, also watched, uh, I did this for the first time. I was like downloading stuff the night before and I'm like, oh God, I just got to put stuff on here. And it was like the number one show in my suggested feed was The Watcher. And I was like, all right, whatever, I'll do that. And uh, it's not a ton on Netflix right now. And I downloaded it and it was awful. I had to, like, I just had to suffer through it because there was nothing else to watch on the plane. And I just ended up watching this six part miniseries. It's about like 
this house that these people from the city buy in the suburbs and then just some like creepy guys stalking him and sending him threatening letters. And it was just like, I don't know, it was weird. I did not, it was kind of felt like that mistake of like, yeah, I don't like the things that are the most popular things in the world. And it just reinforced that. I was like, why is this the number one show? This is not very good. Okay. So out on the watcher. Don't watch the watcher. We do not. I don't need to don't watch don't watch the watcher. Complete waste of time. Um, and then on the way home, I had to download only on Netflix. HBO doesn't work internationally, so I downloaded. But uh, season six of Better Call Saul, and I'm like halfway through that, and so good. I'm still all about Better Call Saul. I think it's a ten out of a ten. I'm I'm failing you. I'm failing you. I have yet to start my. You know, I, I I mean, I've told we we've talked about this. I've gotten in maybe three or four episodes of season one. I don't know what is wrong with me. Like, I love Breaking Bad so much. I love the writers, producers associated with Better Call Saul. What I don't this is a weird block. Uh, I need to get over it, and I'm only hurting my own self. I feel like at this point. Yeah, it's I it's so fascinating to me because like, I think we've we've talked about this, but it's just how it's like, oh, it's just an offshoot of Breaking Bad. Like, no, it's an entirely different series. And Bob Odenkirk, um, who plays Saul, and then Rhea Seahorn, who plays Kim Wexler, are just so good. They, they just drive the the this story so well. The characters are so strong. I it just is a really, really good show. And then Vince Gilligan, the way they the film, I was really noticeable in the season six of all just the little b-roll setting the emotion one of the key things i think in filmmaking is giving space to breathe um so you need points within an episode where it's not just like plot it's not just dialogue you need time to kind of like process and whatnot and it's what i kind of always am trying to do within the 50 is you, you things are moving along moving along and then you need to like let the emotions settle in and he does such a good job at that i realize and a lot of tv shows don't it's just dialogue to dialogue to dialogue to dialogue and he has these moments where you just kind of get a that that feeling, that emotional depth kind of going on where you're, you're processing what is about to happen or what just happened. So um, he's kind of a master of letting it breathe, in my opinion. By the way, has the 50 Project and having to put out these fairly succinct episodes, does that have you watching TV shows and movies differently? Or were you already sort of, I guess, for lack of a better word, fairly like sophisticated on some of those fronts before you started the 50? No, I was not very sophisticated on it. And I think just the process of churning out episodes has made me learn yeah. a lot and just kind of like essentially directing every episode and watching every cut and seeing where it's going and trying to add in spaces and like, tension and emotion and whatnot it's i'm starting to watch tv i'd say it's a long process because i think tv and movies that i've realized like the directors out there the the um marty scorsese's and all that they're just on a different level of how genius they are um and that's so far advanced. I was in such a beginner stage. You'd watch it and go amazing, but I didn't know what they were doing from like a technical standpoint, from um, a writing standpoint. And I'm kind of learning that and I'm trying to be a more sophisticated watcher to try and be like, what are they doing and how can I incorporate this into what I'm making? So um, seeing like watching Better Call Saul this season has really illustrated that to me. And it's, it's kind of fun. It's like learning a whole new world, but doing it on the fly because I've never taken like a filmmaking 
baking course or anything like that in my life. So it's just kind of like trying to figure it out myself. Another text exchange of ours recently, you sent me the trailer for the new Succession season. Oh, Jesus. I'm so high. I'm so, I, I'm, I am 100% it. I told you, I think it took me about 11 seconds into the trailer. And I was like, you can just turn this off right now. I'm good. I don't need any more. Like, I don't need to be fired up anymore, any more excited. And, and now, and you were lamenting like the new season doesn't drop till sometime in spring 2023. This is really, people need to hold me accountable on this. What I really need to do between now and then, I just, I don't need to like watch anything new. I need to actually go watch all Better Call Saul. And I really want to go back and watch all of Secession prior to the new season starting. Those are my only two goals for the winner. <laughs> my, I definitely, I have a high bar for uh, watching the bear is high up there, but I do think, yeah. yes, a Secession rewatch would be so good. And I, it'd be just to, yeah, bring it all up, start in like, March or February and just start getting leading up to the season. Cause yeah, I want to spend more time with those characters. They're so good. Yeah. One last plug. Cause this is just what I do now. Every episode speaking of the bear, I, I have gone back through it. I finished the finale again. I, uh, two nights ago as good or better the second time through such a massive fan of that show. Talk about just from the writing the cinematography, the shots, the cuts, the actors, like it is a magnificent world, uh, in my little opinion. And it, there are moments, clear moments throughout the film where you're just like, you basically are just watching a masterful play. Like literally the camera is on an individual, nothing moving, and one of the most powerful points in the show is just this extended monologue and it's brilliant. And I, I just have such an appreciation for like everyone involved on that. And there are moments where it is hysterically funny. Um, yeah. So again, it's been fun. I've been getting uh, people writing me from like all around the world who are like, hey, because you wouldn't shut up about the bear, like I finally watched it. And so this brings me a lot of joy that I'm getting like some people in on this show and maybe even you someday, Cody. Yeah, oh, definitely. It's, just, it's the big, the biggest hurdle is just like signing up for a new thing. So I just got to get that done with. Well, hey, is our work here done? Did we do it? I believe, I believe so. I believe we've reviewed the news and now we're getting into winter. So we're going to get a little bit of even more, hopefully some yeah. ski news, get, uh, get back on track in terms of that and maybe less politics, yeah. hopefully, um, not always the easiest yeah. discussions, but, uh, but yeah, I think we, 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 we reviewed the news properly. Properly. Well, always fun to do and really appreciate the good questions that uh, were submitted. Please keep the Mountain Town advice questions coming. We're still looking for our first relationships question. Yeah, totally. As we've said, we're Cody and I just want to be like relationship coaches, really. So come on, some of you, we know you're out there. You're wondering, you're trying to figure out your situation. Who who better to weigh in and guide guide you than the two of us? I mean, come on. Right. 
Yeah, I've been with the same woman for like 18 years, and you're, I think, still currently single. I've been married to Blister for 12 years now, you know, solid, solid, rock solid relationship there. And, uh, you know, so, um, but, you know, I've been out there. Yeah, you have, you probably have more experience than I do these days. Like, I probably know how to keep a good marriage going, uh, probably yeah. better than you because I've been married for a long time at this point. But uh, ultimately, when it comes to like dating and all that stuff, I'd be like, I, I mainly just live vicariously through all my friends and hear all their stories, which then does give me, you know, that good third party mm. kind of viewership of like, hey, you should yeah. be doing this. So, yeah. So hit us up with those questions, people. That's right. And, Check out the latest episode of The 50 Project. It's a it's a good one. My favorite thing is Nick Russell and and the strikingly handsome Justin Bob. I'm convinced are like the same person. So like every time I like talk to Nick or see him in episodes, lit, like literally for people who know J Bob, it's like I can't imagine two human beings being more similar. And so it always is really fun to see Nick out there because I just am like, wow, it's this weird Nick slash J-Bob thing happening for me. So I appreciate any time uh, we get Nick in an episode. I appreciate it that we didn't have to take him on a <laughs> supper fast for his first time. We got two pillows in the episode. He was out of room and he just like, it was just, I felt again, I wrapped it up, but I was like, karmically, yeah. he needed that. He needed something where he wasn't just suffering. Otherwise I might've permanently lost him and eventually at some point being like, no, Cody, why do we keep making skiing harder than it needs to be? <laughs> So check out that episode, submit us your Mountain Town advice questions, watch the bear, or join me in finally watching Better Call Saul, and then we'll catch you guys uh, next month on this one. So yeah, thanks, Cody. Thank you, Jonathan. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Cody, mostly just for finally starting to watch The Bear. Honestly, that's really what I want to thank him for. I guess I should thank him for the pretty good conversation too. I want to say thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And from the entire team here at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon.